Before we do that, we're going to do an informal poll. Um, let's take like the last two weeks, give or take, so 14 days or so. How many of you, and this is going to be a show of hands, so you're going to have to be bold. Um, how many of you say it's been a really good two weeks? Like, yeah, it's been a good two weeks. Okay. Some people are hesitating. I get it. Okay. How many of you would say, yeah, I would rather not ever see those two weeks again? <laughs> All right. Cool. We got, there's a mixed bag, right? How many of us would say like, eh, like I'm non-committal. This is all my non-committal people, yeah, right? So life is a mix of things, right? Like life is, like some of us have had, like the last two weeks have been amazing and we're like, man, like I just see things happening and things are falling into place. And, and then for others of us, it's like, oh my gosh, like how quickly can I move on from this? And then for most of us, I would say if you were just to take a general poll, we all probably had a mix of that. Because even in our best weeks, there's challenges, there's hard things. And in our worst weeks, there are usually these little glimmers of hope, hopefully, and these little nuggets that God seems to give us to be like, okay, like things, things are going to be okay, like we're going to get through this. And the reason I ask you that is because there's a reality that life is always going to be a mixed bag, that, that, that there's going to be good weeks and bad weeks, that, that there's going to be trials. Sometimes they're really, really big, hard things that we face, right? Things that just seem overwhelming and insurmountable. And then sometimes they're just little nuisances. And I don't know, if you're like me, so like the big things oftentimes don't hit me as hard because it's almost like I can't control them anyway, so I just kind of shrug them off. And I'm like, oh, well, I can't fix that. It's the little things. You guys ever get like, you ever lose your mind over little things? Like things that you're like, why did I react this way? My counselor once told me this, and I, I should pay him for how many times I share this. Um, well, I do pay him, but that's totally different. Um, but he, we were talking through something I was going through, and he was like, well, why'd you react that way? I was like, what do you mean? He said, look, if you have a $100 response to a $10 problem, you have to ask where the other $90 came from. I was like, oh, thank you, sensei. That's profound. <laughs> And it's true, right? So like we, we, we have these highs and lows. Life is full of it. Day, it's not even just day to day. It's like moment by moment. Like you could be having the best day ever and then you get a flat tire and you're like, God, where are you? What have you done to me, right? Like it's just, it takes so little for our lives to be, feel like they're thrown out of play. And so trials and struggles that we face day in and day out are inevitable. You're not gonna avoid them. You're gonna hit them. You're, you're gonna experience them, especially as you get older. You start to experience them in different ways. It's just the reality of living in a broken world. It's a reality of the brokenness that we carry within us. We, it's, it just is. It's not a good thing necessarily or a bad thing. It's just, it is what it is. But what that does is it leads us into this space where we tend to spend a lot of our lives doing what I would call crisis management. And so we spend a lot of our time, and whether we realize it or not, whether it's like in the front of our mind or kind of sitting somewhere in the back, we spend a lot of time trying to kind of manage the potential crisis. So we, we mitigate and we kind of like, how do I avoid making sure that this doesn't hurt too much? Or how do I avoid making sure we don't struggle with this thing, right? So we do a lot of crisis management um, on, the back, on the back end. And, and when we feel like we don't know what to do, it fills us with anxiety and fear and frustration. And we're like, oh, what if, but what if? And we, you know, some of us who are like glass half empty kind of people are like, well, when's the next shoe going to fall? And what's going going to be the next problem and who's going to get mad at me tomorrow, right? Like there's some of that that goes on. And so it, it creates this kind of management mode in us where we try and kind of control and manipulate in order to avoid some of the hard things. Like that, that there's this crisis management thing that we tend to live in uh, in our lives. And I don't even know that we realize it. And, or what we do is when we're in the midst of hard things, we just, we want to numb. And so we get, we busy ourselves 
It's like when things are hard, it's like, I'm just going to be really busy. I can't fix that, but I can fix these other hundred things. So I'm just going to go fix all those things. And it's a way of detaching ourselves from the reality of struggle and suffering. Or some of us turn to medicating, right? We use alcohol and different things, entertainment, TikTok, mindlessly flipping our brains away, staring at weird people doing dumb things, right? But all of these are numbing mechanisms, but what, they're, what they are at their root, they're us managing potential or perceived crises. No matter how big or how small, it's something we do all the time. But it reveals something in us. And well, first of all, there's this. We do all these things and they work. Often they do. Un- until they don't. Like all of these things that we do to manage the crisis and to protect and control and chase comfort, like they work until they just don't work anymore. They work until the crisis is too big or we're just exhausted and we can't fake it anymore and we collapse under the weight of it. Like they just work until they don't work anymore. But deeper than that, it reveals something. It reveals a flaw in our thinking. And this is what we're really gonna tackle today in 1 Peter it reveals a flaw in our thinking that we believe somehow that our circumstances actually determine our flourishing. See, what you and I fundamentally struggle with is believing that the only way I can be happy or fulfilled or at peace or at rest is if my circumstances measure up to this expectation. Like whether you realize it or not, we live our lives that way. It's actually a core problem. And then what happens in the midst of that is our expectations get crushed. And the things we thought we were going to work, the job, the 401k, all the things we thought were going to bring peace, wholeness, rest, they don't. And then we're back in crisis management mode. We're like, okay, now how do we fix this one? Like, how do I solve this problem, right? And up and down and up and down. It's a fundamental flaw in our thinking to believe that our circumstances determine our flourishing. And that we can only be happy if we can reduce the bad days and increase the good days. If we can reduce the things that we don't, the the struggles, and increase the lack of struggles or the comfort. The Bible would actually teach us, though, that there is a way to flourish despite our circumstances. And that that, that isn't ignoring bad things. So it's not saying like, oh, no, like the Pollyanna-ish, like, oh, well, like everything's just fine and we'll figure it out. It's not that. The Bible teaches us that there's a way that we can live that transcends our circumstances. That because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the empowering of his spirit, we can live a life of consistency and wholeness and peace and rest, not perfectly, but we can live that way regardless of our circumstances. And that's what I'm describing as a transformed life. A life that can weather the storms. A life that can deal with the hurts and the hits that are inevitably going to come, both because of things that have happened to you and, frankly, because of the dumb things that you and I do, right? Like, we shoot ourselves in the foot a lot and then complain how much our foot hurts. And then sometimes someone shoots us in the foot and we're like, dude, like, why did you have to shoot me in the foot? But the Bible seems to teach us, it does, it doesn't seem to, it does teach us that we can live above that. That what Jesus offers us is to transform hearts and minds and souls and lives in such a way that we can have the stability and consistency and wholeness, the peace that we so long for, regardless of the circumstance. So on Good Friday, on Friday, 
We now call it Good Friday. Jesus was arrested in the garden, right? All of his disciples were there. Jesus had asked them to pray. They decided to nap. And then in the garden, Judas and the soldiers and the ruling officials come and they arrest Jesus and they take him. And he is tried unlawfully. He is convicted unlawfully. He is then crucified. And then he is buried. Or he dies and then he's buried. In the midst of that, his followers scatter. If you know your Bible, you know your story, right? You can picture it in your head. In the garden, you know, Peter gets a little zealous for a second, grabs his little sword and lops off an ear. That doesn't go well. Jesus heals the ear. But then as Jesus, this is the, the one they believe is Messiah. As he is hauled off to be crucified, they scatter. They're terrified. They, they think they're next. Most of the disciples scatter. And then Peter... Peter goes as far as to to deny Jesus three times to the point of calling down curses. I don't know this guy. The one who was called the rock. Jesus is like, you're my rock. You're the one I'm going to build a church on. That guy is like, I'm out. I don't know him. I don't know who you're talking about. The funny thing happens about a month or so later, these same people who have scattered and are hiding will be boldly proclaiming the gospel. Boldly proclaiming the gospel in the face of persecution, in the face of the threats of being arrested, in the face of hard and struggling circumstances. Less than two months later, from hiding and denying, they're going to be boldly proclaiming what changed. What happened? Resurrection. They had an encounter with the risen Jesus. See, it wasn't It wasn't them seeing him on a cross that changed them. It was them seeing him alive after that changed them. They'd seen a lot of people die on crosses. Happened a lot. They had never seen, nor will they ever see again, one raised from the dead. And not only that, like hanging out with them, having fish, and like talking And it radically transforms their lives. These disciples, these followers of Jesus are radically transformed. And all of the fears and all of the things that were were causing them to be hiding and and to pull away are now gone. They they have this boldness, this proclamation because they're empowered by the Spirit, right? We see that in Acts 2. The Spirit comes, empowers them. And they go and they boldly say, no, Jesus is Messiah. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And they're told repeatedly, don't keep saying that. And most of them die because they say it. They are radically transformed. Their encounter with the risen Jesus transforms them. Well, 1 Peter, what we're going to look at today, in the first chapter, he wrote that about 30 or so years after that event. After his transformation, after his encounter with the risen Jesus, about 30 years later, he writes this letter to a group of churches in Asia Minor who are struggling. They're suffering. And they're wrestling with the same question that you and I wrestle with. Why? Like if Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, if he's risen from the dead, why are we going through all of this? Why is life so hard? Why are we so hurting? Why are we so frustrated? Why are our loved ones dying? Why does this keep happening? So Peter writes to encourage them, these struggling churches, and to help them to see and experience what he saw and experienced 
because of Jesus. And by proxy, we get to learn from it too. We get to be encouraged. We get to be reminded that because of Jesus, we too have been transformed. And in the midst of our trials and challenges, we can actually live with wholeness and peace. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into the passage. Jesus, we thank you uh, for the resurrection. We do. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the fact that you would lay down your life. You would choose to lay down your life for our sins to take on what we deserve. We deserve the punishment. We, we are the ones who have wronged you. You did nothing wrong. And yet in your love and in your mercy, you would lay down your life for us. But you didn't stay dead. You rose from the grave and you conquered sin and death. And in that, you paved a way to be, for us to be transformed, to become new creation. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, I pray that this morning as we just dig a little bit into this passage, that our hearts would be challenged and convicted, Lord, that you would awaken in us. Lord, you know my prayer this whole week. Like, I feel like Easter just becomes a thing that we do year in and year out and we hear the same stories and it just, we, come, we become inoculated to the just amazing news of your resurrection. Lord, I pray that this morning you would give us fresh hearts and fresh eyes and a fresh mind to experience you, not just to understand intellectually, but to experience your presence and your power that you would change us, that we truly would live, the, to live out the life of being transformed. We thank you so much for your grace. Holy Spirit, come speak to us now in your son's name. Amen. All right, so let's look at, we're picking up at verse three. So chapter one, 1 Peter one, picking up at verse three. Peter says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So the first thing that Peter comes out with the gate, he comes out hot, right? Beginning of his letter, he, he reminds us that what Jesus' resurrection, what the resurrection offers us, is, is a sense of endless optimism. The, the resurrection offers us endless optimism. And here's why. Look, so look at that first phrase. He said, where the, the, the first half of this, the second half of the first phrase, he says, he's given us a new birth into a living hope. So new birth, like Jesus, like didn't come to just kind of make you a little bit better. It's not like, you know, when you go get your car repaired, and they're like, ah, we'll throw a little Bondo on that and we'll touch up the paint a little bit. You know, you can get some new spinners on it if you want to. Like it'll look fresh. Like, that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't that you look fresher. It's that you are new. You go from death to life, old to new. You, are a, you, you get a new birth. Remember, Jesus talked about this with Nicodemus. He said, like, if you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what the heck is that? Like, I'm not going to re-enter into my mother's womb. And so th- there's this whole thing. Like, like, there's this new birth that has to happen. The prophet Ezekiel, the Lord speaks through the prophet Ezekiel. And he says it this way, that, that he's going to give us, the Lord says he's going to give us a new heart and a new mind and a new spirit. He's going to take out our stony, cold, dead hearts and give us a heart of flesh that would actually desire to follow, that we would want to obey, that our hearts would be so radically transformed because of this new birth that we, would, we wouldn't be like, oh, I guess I got to do what Jesus says. Well, that's not going to be very much fun. But it would be like, no, like you are king of kings and lord of lords. You rose from the dead. How could I not? I, I, I want to follow you. I want to love you. 
That that's this transformative work that happens in followers of Jesus. And look, we're in the Bible Belt where a lot of people grew up in pews. And you've been hearing this for 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 70 years. Do you remember that transformative work? Do you remember that you actually went from death to life? It's, it's in many ways a lot easier for those of us who came to faith later in life. And we're rescued from like just, we, like a, we just knew the depths of our brokenness. Like that's a very different experience than kind of growing up in church and just have kind of always been a good person. I always did what I was told to do. And yeah, Jesus died on the cross for me and I get it. And in some ways it kind of softens in our hearts the reality of the transformation that goes on. That you are not just a repaired version, but you are all new. He has given you a new birth, a reshaped affection, and he's, and he's empowered you with a spirit and that new birth, what you're born into, he says it right here. He says, this is a living hope. Now, hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. Like, you and I think of hope like, well, I really hope that works out, or I really hope the service isn't too long, right? Like, <laughs> that's how we think of hope. It won't be, I promise. Well, I promise might be strong. I'm gonna try. But hope in the Bible is really this idea of confident expectation. So it's not just this pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking like, well, I hope Jesus rose from the dead and I hope this all works out and you know, one day I'm gonna stand before some pearly gates, which by the way, where did that come from? I don't even know where the whole pearly gates thing came from. If anyone knows, let me know. But I'm gonna stand before him and I hope he lets me in and I hope it works out. Like that is not the Bible's version of hope. Peter's saying is that we have a new birth into a living hope, a confident expectation. In other words, our hope isn't dead, it's alive because Jesus is alive. Like it's not just this historical story that sits somewhere out there. We're like, wow, that's really interesting. And I mean, I understand it academically and I really hope that works out. But it's, it's alive, it's in us. Jesus is with us. His power in, indwells us as followers of him. That we have been given a new birth into a living hope. Jesus is alive, which means if he's alive, then his promises are alive. And if his promises are alive, then we can stake our lives on that. We can bank on his promises. He goes on and says that this living hope, this new birth into a living hope, is through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, right? The resurrection, what we're here to celebrate today into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven. So he says, this new birth you have into this living hope, that living hope is an inheritance. And it's an inheritance that can't be killed. It can't be corrupted. It will never, ever dim. And it is fully protected by him. Nothing can be done to take it from you. Nothing can be done to diminish it. If he says it, you can, you can take it to the bank. You can trust in it. Well, maybe not smaller banks. Go to larger banks right now, but that's a different thing. So <laughs> this is why I, I get distracted. <laughs> Stay off the news, people. Um, but it's an inheritance, and it can't be killed. It can't be corrupted. will never dim, and it's fully protected. And it's given to us this new birth into a living hope, this inheritance that Jesus is giving us through the resurrection it's because of his great mercy. That's in verse three. His great mercy. See, it's not our efforts and abilities. It's not how cool you are, how smart you are, how, how hard you work to, to like serve others or love him. 
It's because of his great mercy. Look, you and I, we are untrustworthy and unstable. A lot, right? Like I'm all over the map. At least day by day, often moment by moment. I got my great days and my bad days and I let my circumstances dictate my disposition. But his mercy is steadfast. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we can, we can rest in that. We can bank on that. That new birth, the living hope, the inheritance we have isn't based on how good or bad we are. It's based on how we trust in Jesus, that we would place ourselves in him. Illustration would be like this. If you um, imagine you're like, you know, in your late teens and um, you got a rich uncle. It's like we all dream about these kinds of things. Like, I wish I had a rich uncle. And so your rich uncle comes to you and you're like, let's say you're 17. And he goes, hey, look, here's, here's the deal. Um, I am setting aside $45 million for you. Putting in a trust fund, it's secure. No one can touch it. Um, it's, it's like, I'm not investing it, so it's not gonna lose its value. It is safe and it is secure. And, but you won't get it till you turn 45. So you're 17 now, you got until you're 45. But once you turn 45, you're gonna get that, the whole thing, every dollar, tax-free. I don't know how he worked it out, but somehow he worked it out. You know, bought off a congressman. I don't know what he did. But somehow, just go with me in the illustration, he's gonna get, you're going to get the full 45 mil. But until then, from 17 to 44, and it's like 44 years and however many days, 364 days, you're going to have to work really, really hard. And, I, and, and you're not going to make a ton of money. You'll have enough to survive on. And I'll, I'll make sure you're taken care of. But you're going to grind. You're gonna, your life is going to be a grind. You're going to work hard. You're going to serve others. You're going to do all the things you need to do. But once you hit 45, you're going to receive this inheritance. So tell me this. If that was you, would that change the grind in any way? On those days when you didn't want to get up, when you, when you were like, oh, 6 a.m., I got to get up and go to work, would it reshape, reanimate you? Absolutely it would. Because you know you have this thing out here. You, you know that, that out there is something for you that God is holding on to, or that your uncle in this case is holding on to, and that it's going to give you the, what you need to get through the next day. He said, hey, I can trust in the inheritance. I can trust that he will take care of me. And my job is to be faithful day in and day out the way my uncles asked me to. It changes how we live. And that's exactly what Peter's trying to tell us here. See, the the resurrection offers us an endless optimism, not because everything's gonna be great and not because we kind of just blank out the bad stuff, but because we have, we've been given a new birth into a living hope and we have this inheritance of eternity sitting out before us and it can't be messed with. And on our worst days here, that inheritance is the same. And on your best days here, it pales in comparison to that. And it should change the way we live. It should change the way we struggle. It should change the way we suffer. In other words, we should be able to thrive day in, day out, even in the hardest things, and not just survive. And I I see far too many of us, including myself, especially in the church, 
actually in many ways more so in the church, just kind of surviving. Like we're just kind of muddling through. You just kind of, oh, I hope it all works out. Or we're clamoring to find other ways of feeling comfortable and find peace and stuff. And we don't thrive. We just kind of live. And we wonder why non-Christians aren't like, wow, I wish I could live like that. That looks amazing. You're miserable. (laughs) Christians should be the most joyous people on the planet. No matter what's going on. No matter who the president is. No matter who's in charge of whatever. No matter what things we might face. Persecution, otherwise. It doesn't matter. Because you've been given a new birth into a living hope. And that hope is secure. And you can stake your whole life on it. Look, if Jesus conquered death, do you really think your problems are too big of a match for him? Like, oh, a death thing, that was easy. But that, like your career issues? Yeah, I don't know what to do with that one. Like, like do you realize how silly we sound when we start thinking about it in light of eternity, in light of the resurrection, in light of the fact that we're talking about the creator of all things? It's, it's absurd. Jesus is not satisfied with us just muddling through. He's offering us so much more. And he's not satisfied with just cleaning us up and making us a little more moral than we were last week. He wants you to be all new. He wants to transform your heart and your mind and your soul and make you alive in a way that you maybe have never experienced. Jesus' resurrection offers us an endless optimism. The second thing it offers us is purpose in our pain. Let's look back at verse five through seven. He continues, he says, you being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. You rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith more valuable than gold which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus' resurrection offers us purpose in our pain. He says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith. You are being guarded, not been guarded, were guarded. You are being ongoing. There's a truth in that, that God is ongoing. His care, his protection, his provision for us is ongoing. Yes, we have an inheritance out there, but we don't just have the inheritance. We also have the presence of the living Savior with us, guarding, protecting, guiding, directing, caring, comforting, challenging, all of those things. This is what the role of the Spirit is in the life of a believer, to do these things in us and through us, the creator of all things. Think about this. The creator of all things surrounds you in every season of your life. He's never far away. We don't worship a disconnected, distant Savior. He's present. He's active. He says you are being guarded through faith, which is this idea that as we learn to, like we experience more and more of his presence and his power as we learn to surrender to him. Remember what we talked about earlier, like we, we try and fill like uh, all of our, like we, we seek comfort and we risk manage by trying to fill other things in around it. None of those things ultimately satisfy. And so faith is beginning to strip those things away and trust that Jesus is my satisfaction. 
So it's, it's saying, okay, Lord, I'm not gonna trust in my career. Like, that's not where I'm gonna find my hope and my value. I, I'm not gonna put my hope in, in, um, in my 401k or in how much money I have in savings. I'm not gonna put my hope in my kid becoming a professional athlete. <laughs> I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna find my hope in my leaders. I'm not gonna find my hope in my government or in my political affiliation. I'm not gonna find my hope in those things. I'm gonna find my hope in you and in you alone because you are the only one who's really guarding me. And you are the only one powerful enough to guard me. The creator of all things is, is, is guarding us and it's through our faith that we experience it. See, look, if, if, if he's protecting me, then I don't have to fight to protect myself anymore. Like if he's sustaining me, then I don't have to work so hard to try and feel sustained. I can let him be God. I can fight the fear of trying to control and manipulate for myself. And he continues to says, you've been being guarded through faith and that you're waiting for this salvation that's not yet revealed. Now, when he's talking about salvation here, um, Peter's not talking about like the idea of personal, like us coming to faith in Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's his shorthand for talking about kind of the restoration of all things. That one day Jesus will return and we will experience, we'll get the 45 mil or more. Like we're gonna get that fullness of that inheritance from him. He says, you're waiting for that but it's not yet revealed. In other words, there's a tension for us. And you know that tension, that you and I don't experience the fullness of what's promised yet. And here's what that means and why it's so important for us to grab onto. There will be times, and some of you raise your hands at me right now, there will be times when you feel unprotected. When it feels like he's really far away. The, the pain is too deep. It, it's too overwhelming. I, I don't know what to do with this. I, I can't take this anymore. Like those times will happen because you haven't gotten the fullness of the inheritance yet. But that doesn't mean that he is any less present. In fact, what Peter tells us to do, which I think is silly, but look at verse six. He says, so we rejoice in this. We rejoice. What? You, you want me to rejoice in the realities of the trials and the suffering that I face. And Peter would say, yeah, I do. To which I would say, all right, we gotta talk about this because this seems really stupid. <laughs> but we rejoice even though we're gonna suffer trials and grief because those are what prove our character. That's what shapes us. Like you don't get stronger by not going to the gym and sitting on your couch and flipping through TikTok. While the TV's on. Why do we do that, by the way? You guys notice that? Like we turn on the TV and then we stare at our phones. I don't understand it. It's really weird. I think younger generations have moved past that. Us old people, we actually do both. You don't get stronger. You don't get fitter sitting on your couch. What do you do? You exercise. You work out. You, you suffer in order to gain, get the gains from it. It costs you. In the same way, when we, when we walk through trials, when we experience hard things, what God's doing in that is he's using it to shape us and to mold us and to remind us, hey, I know, I know that hurts and I know everything in you wants to run to your, your friend or your spouse or your career or whatever to try and make it feel better or to the bottle or whatever it is. I know you want to run to that. It's not going to satisfy. Trust me. Stay present. Don't run from it. Let me meet you in this space. And we're like, I don't want to do that. 
But that's that refining process, right? That's how he starts to shape us and mold us and prove himself. Because we begin to experience him in the midst of that. And so because of that, we can rejoice. Because that refining strips away all the other things that we would run to for peace and for comfort and to hold for wholeness. And it deepens our faith, which Peter says is actually what God's goal is. The most precious thing to God is that we would trust him. But God's goal is not your comfort. It's not. God's goal is not that you would be happy or satisfied or fulfilled in your career. None of those are bad things, but they're not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing that God cares about is that you would trust him. And that that trust would would saturate every fiber of your being to the point that no matter what you face in whatever circumstance, you would experience his peace and his presence and his power. And so because of that, we can rejoice. Because Jesus' resurrection offers us purpose in our pain. We have to fight the compulsion in us to believe that somehow when we suffer and struggle, God's not there. God's actually more present. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know you're with me. And he's using every moment, whether you see it or not, or I see it or not, doesn't really matter in many ways. He's using every moment, every experience, every day to shape us, to strip away these things that we chase after to manage our lives, the things that are less than him. And he's with with us in the middle of it. See, God's not arbitrary. He doesn't just do things just to do them. Every breath you take is ordained by him. He knows every moment of your life. And if that's true, then there isn't a wasted moment. Even like when you feel like they are wasted. But we learn to trust him and rest in him as we learn to walk in and surrender. And we've talked about this a lot, Cornerstone. It's not about trying harder. It's about surrendering more. Your life, your maturity in Christ is not going to be about just trying harder to be a better person. It's going to be about you letting go of you. He who wants to gain his life has to lose his life. It's learning to strip away the old and put on the new And let him do that work in us. Because faith ultimately isn't about how much faith you have. It's about the object of your faith. It's not about you. It's not about me. Happy Easter. It's not about us. It isn't. It's about Jesus. It's not like you going, oh man, I'm so good at faith today. Like today's my, this is like a 10 on a scale of 10 faith day. Whether your faith, whether it's a one day or a 10 day, The object of your faith is worthy. On your best day or your worst day, the object of your faith is worthy. Jesus is with you. He is guarding you. He is protecting you. He's giving you a new birth into a living hope. And if he is risen from the dead and his power lives in you, then you lack nothing. You have everything you need. Lastly, Jesus' resurrection offers us clarity in our confusion. Look back at verse 8. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you are not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter's like, hey, like churches, like I know, like I got to walk with Jesus. You didn't. Though you haven't seen him, you still love him. And it's that agape love, it's committed. It's even though you haven't seen him, you are steadfast committed to Jesus. You're all in, ride or die with him in every circumstance. It's deeper than just kind of feelings or affection. It's, it's a love of saying, like, I, I trust you, Jesus, and I will follow you wherever you say I should go. And Peter's encouraging him. He's like, look, you, you have that disposition, and you didn't get to physically walk with him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him. In other words, you trust in him. You take him at his word. You believe that if he said it, you can bank on it, that, that he is worthy of you listening to and following it goes beyond, belief goes beyond intellectual understanding or our agreement of it, right? It's not us going, well, explain this to me, Jesus, and then I'll think about whether or not I'm gonna follow you. Like, if you, could, if you could connect some of these dots, that would be really helpful. See, for him, seeing and understanding isn't the primary goal. Trusting him and having faith in him is the primary goal. It doesn't mean that he leaves us without any explanation, but here's the reality. And I know I say this knowing that some of us in here are going through deep, hurting seasons. So he- hear me as I say this, knowing that I, I get it. He doesn't owe us an explanation. God doesn't owe us an explanation. And we, we, want, we have the whys. I want to know why. Why, 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 why? And the reality is, is he just doesn't owe us that. He holds all of life and breath. He owns everything in the palm of his hand. You are his. You are not even your own. And he says, I'm with you and I'm for you. And I will take care of you. In the deepest valleys, I'm right there with you. But I don't have to explain myself. Do you realize how arrogant that sounds of us? Excuse me, creator of all things, who literally holds all of my breaths, could you please explain yourself? Why am I having to go through this? Like the depth of arrogance that that is in us. If you want to know how that goes when you ask that question, go read the book of Job. Especially the last couple chapters. God gets a little bit aggressive with Job in his explanations. He doesn't owe us an explanation. And so in our confusion, Peter says we can rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That we can have joy. Happiness is circumstantial, but joy is this deeper thing that transcends our experience because we're receiving the goal of our faith. And she says, again, the salvation of our souls, that restoration of all things, the fact that we have a living hope. So even though we don't understand everything, even though we're going to face things that make no sense, we can have clarity even in that confusion because Jesus, that's what the resurrection offers us, clarity in the confusion. Because we may not be clear about the circumstances, we may not be clear of why these things are happening, but we can be clear about a few things. One, we can be clear that God can be trusted and that his promises are steadfast. We can be clear that he loves us, that he's for us, not because of us, but because of him, because of his great love. We can be clear that our ultimate hope is secure and that one day we will get the inheritance, we'll experience the fullness of it. And we can be clear that he's using these struggles to deepen our faith. And I know for many of us in this room, that may not feel like it's enough for us, 
But God seems to think it is. And as a loving father, he's saying, just come on, trust me. I know you're hurting. I know you're terrified. I know it seems like it makes no sense. But I'm with you. And you can trust me. And I can lead you. And if we do that, we can experience peace. So as we were thinking through Easter and this, the, this topic of transformation and this passage, I was trying to come up with, think through an illustration, like how can we best capture what this transformed life looks like? What does it look like to live above our circumstances, to live beyond those? And so we're gonna watch a testimony video of a family in our church. And so like, think, I want you to think about this. Like, what do you do when everything you thought was going to be a certain way crumbles around you? What do you do when, when, when the expectations of a life that you were going to build ends up not happening the way you anticipated? And when suffering and grief become overwhelming to you? And, and where is Jesus in the midst of all this? Watch the screens and you'll hear the story. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm Lindsay. And we're a blended family that began on April 9th, 2022. And as you're watching this, today is our one-year anniversary. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, and I didn't really walk with the Lord until I got to college. Um, upon getting to college, I started walking with the Lord and learned what it was to like to follow Him and making Him Lord of my life. Um, and after college, uh, I met my wife, Julie. Um, she was a wonderful Christian woman, um, loved the Lord. She had all the qualities that I was looking for in a wife. So we got married on um, May the 16th, 1998, and we had four kids. Um, Bailey, Emily, Madison, and Ben. Both of us were fully devoted to the Lord and tried to raise our kids the best we could under the, the banner of the Lord. Um, I became a Christian as a child and I grew up in a Christian home and I grew up learning the truths of scripture. At 22, I met Jason and fell in love with a young man with a colorful past, but a beautiful story of redemption. We got married um, June 10th, 2006 and walked life and faith together. We were both in vocational ministry at different times and decided when we had our first child, Lily, in 09, that we wanted me to stay home. Jason led our family so well. He was a super intentional dad, um, super intentional husband. He delighted in the Lord and in us and worked hard in friendships and career. Our marriage was not perfect, but it was precious. On August, 2015, Julie was diagnosed with brain cancer. Um, we, had, uh, we were very hopeful at first. Um, she had a successful surgery to remove the tumor. Um, but within, um, by January of 2016, the tumor had returned in the same spot, but, and also another spot in her brain, which in this um, case, it was inoperable. So there was no way to have another surgery. It wasn't an option. Julie fought a great fight. She's clung to her Lord. Um, she um, was a brave warrior, um, but ultimately the cancer took her life. She passed away February of 2017. After 18 years of marriage, um, I found myself um, without my best friend, without my, um, the one that I loved, the one that I thought I'd spend the rest of my life with, um, the, my partner in raising our kids. Felt hopeless, like I didn't know what life 
look like um, on this side of after Julie without her. Uh, so just broken. Since college, I developed a love for the, God's Word. Um, I de but I developed a regular rhythm for reading God's Word um, about four years before Julie passed. And I think it was a way, uh, just the hand of the Lord preparing me for, for what I was about to desperately need. It says in Psalms 34, 18, um, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And I can attest that the Lord was near to me. I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how they were thrown into the fiery furnace and they found, um, and Jesus showed up with them and was right beside them. I wasn't thrown into a fiery furnace per se, but um, my, I felt my desperation, my grief wasn't a sense of fiery furnace of its own, just in a different way. And I found just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, I found that the Lord was right there with me, that his presence was tangibly there. There were so many tears though, so many breakdowns. I'd go to my closet at the quietness at the end of the day and I would just break down and, and fall apart. The Lord was with me each of those times I fell apart, <clears throat> collecting my tears. In early um, 2019 or that spring, God called me to start getting up early about 5 a.m. and just having time with Him before our my day got started just in, t in scripture and in prayer. Later that year, in December of 2019, Jason was diagnosed with stage four cancer. We were in shock. Jason and I prayed and fasted and trusted and tried to maintain some sense of normalcy for our children, but about the only constant we had with the craziness going around and cancer and COVID was the Lord. Everything else was shifting. August 19th, after our last date night, he woke up unable to breathe well. We spent the next day in the hospital learning that his body was shutting down and we will not start our next round of chemo. We were sent home on hospice care and by the 21st, two, year, two days later, Jason went home to see his, receive his holy inheritance. 14 years of marriage was not enough. I had lost my best friend my children had lost their amazing dad. And I was left in complete disbelief. This is when my daily appointment with my father became the literal breath I breathed. When I could not catch my breath, he gave me life to live that day. With each promise that God faithfully brought to pass in my daily life, my faith became more genuine and more real to myself. He began gathering all my broken pieces, redeeming them through the fire, so they became useful and genuine. Every tear, and there were and still are a plethora, that he caught in a bottle, Psalm 56, 8, would be used to water my dry, parched heart. Psalm 23 became my daily reality. My shepherd leads me, and I have all that I need for my emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical needs and those of my children. He was turning my thirsty ground into green pastures of faith. After Jason passed away, I would reach out to Lindsay, um, be in text, and, and we were friends. We were, we've known each other for, for many years in church, and I, Julie and I served under her, and she's a children's director here at Cornerstone. But I'd, I would reach out to her every 10 days to two weeks just to see how she was doing and see if there was any way I could pray for her um, because I'd walked in her shoes. And, and so that, 
you know, just her sharing prayer requests and me praying for her and reaching out and seeing how they're doing continued for about six months over that time of, of seeing her prayer request and seeing how she loved her kids and um, the text back and forth we'd have. I really got to see so much evidence of just the fruits of the Spirit in her life and how much she like truly just um, lived and abided by Him. So my heart honestly began to stir towards Lindsay. Um, so I, I felt attracted to her and um, I felt weird that I was feeling that way and she's texting me and not knowing that I feel this way. So my integrity wouldn't let me just continue to um, receive those texts without letting her know how I was feeling. After Jason went home, I had some hard faith and scripture struggles. And so the only person I knew that had walked through it, through cancer and their spouse had passed away was Chris. Our faith and understanding of the Lord was so similar. Mm -hmm. We shared a language of faith and grief and single parenting and we were just drawn to each other. I couldn't understand how my heart could be drawn to another because my heart was still so full of Jason. It was then that the Lord taught me that he was about to enlarge the boundaries of my heart. I met with her for coffee and I just shared with her how I was feeling and I, and I told her that I didn't presume that she was ready, um, but that if she ever became ready or if she ever started taking applications, then I wanted to be the first to apply. Um, I wasn't really sure I would, um, but I knew he was a cherished friend and that my heart was definitely drawn to his and we um, definitely had a shared faith. But we did agree to leave there and um, to, to go from there that I, could, that I could call her son instead of these texts. Before he went home, Jason shared his desire for me to find someone else. At the time, it didn't make sense to me because he knew all I wanted was him. But now it was a gift, a permission from my beloved to allow the borders of my heart to allow another. So our friendship led us to start, uh, start going out on dates, um, like Lindsay had said, and we started um, seeing each other often. Um, we started talking on the phone every night and um, it just blossomed in my heart. I felt my heart growing towards her and it, it became a, um, it, it, like I was developing a true love for her. Um, and then I began to realize that, that she's my Ruth that I've been praying for. So I asked her to marry me. <laughs> um, and she said yes. <laughs> Chris loves the Lord and cherishes His Word and trusts His ways. He loves me with the most tender love and He walks with Lily and Camden with the same depth and understanding and tenderness that He does with His own four. The encouragement of God's Word that has been inscribed on His heart through joy and suffering is the way He lives and speaks and leads. And the gift of being His wife is beyond what I could have asked or imagined. We together desire our, heart, our marriage to be uh, a reflection of the gospel. We want others to see our marriage as a reflection of Him and His goodness. That's our hope today on Easter, that you will hear our story and that you'll be blessed and that you will be prompted to fall more in love with our Savior. See, transformation isn't about your circumstances. It's not. Chris and Lindsay's testimony is a, it, it, their story is a testimony of that. That you can flourish in the midst of brokenness.
that Jesus can meet you in the darkest days. There's a um, centuries-old Japanese art form called kintsugi. And what kintsugi is, this is a fake kintsugi because it's too expensive to buy real ones. I don't have the budget for it. But what they do is, if there's a broken piece of pottery, a broken bowl or a broken cup, it's, it's put back together and it's mended with 24 karat gold. They use 24 karat gold to mend the seams. And it actually ends up stronger than it originally was. And, and part of the philosophy behind it is that it's the scars that actually show the beauty. That it's through the scars that you get to see the beauty of the pottery and the value comes, it, it, it rises exponentially because of the beauty of the scars. This is what the resurrection offers you and me. It, it doesn't offer us a life without scars. Like it just doesn't. And if you've been trying to figure that out and figure out a way to experience that life, I hate to break it to you, it's not gonna happen. But what Jesus does offer you is to bring beauty in the midst of the scars. And he can take the brokenness of your life and he can mend it together in a beautiful way so that it displays him. And he can bring you and offer you the wholeness that you so desperately desire. That's what it looks like to be transformed. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna invite the band up. We're gonna actually transition into a time of reflection and worship. And as we do that, I just wanna ask you guys a couple seconds, or a couple things I want you to think about. One, um, like I said earlier, Oftentimes we come to church for Easter and it, we kind of get, a, a, like a, the phrase I use is inoculated. We hear the message over and over and over again, year after year after year, and it just kind of becomes another thing that we hear. And, and if maybe you've walked with Jesus for a long time, but I want to ask you this question. Like, would you say that your faith experience as you walk with Jesus is one that's, that would, like, we're transformation? You'd be like, yeah, my life is transformed. Like, I see it. Like, I'm able to live above my circumstances oftentimes, and I get to see God move in my life. If that's not your experience, then I really think that you, and I would put myself among you, that we're missing so much of what Jesus offers us. And it probably stems a lot from our desire to control and all the other things that we pull into our life to try and make ourselves feel safe and secure rather than looking to him for that. And so as we go into this time of worship, I would encourage you, if that's you, if that resonates in your heart, simply confess that. Just tell him, say, Jesus, I've been looking for my peace and comfort in things other than you. And if he makes that clear what that is, confess it. Say, Lord, I've been looking for my peace and comfort in how much money I have or how big my house is or my job, whatever it would be. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so surrender starts with just simply admitting it. Jesus, help me. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to do this better, but I know I need your help. And then there's others of us who maybe we come in here and we don't have a faith in Jesus. You know, whether you grew up in church or not is kind of irrelevant. Just because I stand in a garage doesn't make me a car. Just because you come to a church doesn't make you a Christian. So there may be some of us that, just, that we've never placed our faith in Jesus. And I can tell you that there is a Savior who has been risen from the dead. And he wants to pick up the broken pieces of your life and he wants to mend them and make them beautiful. And he is worthy of trusting and worthy of following with everything that you have if you'll let him. 
And that's as simple as just a simple prayer of saying, Jesus, I give myself to you and I want to follow you. Uh, you don't have to have all the details. You don't have to know what it looks like. Just simply say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And I promise you, he will meet you in that space. And we as a church, this is why we exist, is to help us with these things, to help us to learn how to take off that old self and how to learn to follow Jesus. And for those of us who come to faith, to, to figure out what it means to follow Jesus and to learn how to follow him. So if you've made either of those decisions, we would love to talk with you. We would love to pray with you. We have a prayer room over here during worship. A couple of us will be over there. We'll have people out in the lobby afterwards. We would love to talk with you about that and see how we can support you as you can turn, learn to follow Jesus and learn to live out the life of transformation that he offers us. So let me pray for us and then we're gonna close in some worship. Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the work that you do in transforming hearts and lives. Lord, forgive us that we settle for just kind of a little better. Good enough is often the enemy of great. And Lord, we don't want to live good enough lives. We want to live transformed lives. And so we surrender ourselves fresh to you now, Lord. We give ourselves to you. Because you rose from the grave, we give ourselves to you. We want to experience that resurrection life. We want to experience that living hope and that new birth. And we thank you, Jesus, that you would lay yourself down for us so that we might have this life. And so we praise you and we honor you and we sing these songs to you because only you are worthy of our worship. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen.